Okay, so the, the material I want to talk to you about tonight is drawn from this larger project on Aristotle's De Anima. I hope that's okay. Um, it's a text that half of you have read uh, already and that the rest of you will read, some of you uh, later this year. And it's in many ways a difficult text. Uh, it's very abstract in the view it takes of the topics it talks about. It's flying about eight miles high. Uh, it's very compressed in its expression. It engages uh, predecessors who often we know relatively little about and who are sufficiently remote from us that even if we know something about them, they feel rather alien. And it's chock full of Aristotelese, technical vocabulary and distinctions and, and so on. And so it's easy then uh, to kind of miss the forest for the trees, to, to lose sight of, or to never get sight of, uh, the larger point or points, you know, the big takeaways. Not that every text has big takeaways. Some texts are more like music. Um, the value lies in the listening, not in the lessons that you take away afterwards. But still, some texts uh, have lessons, uh, morals, takeaways. And even when they don't, it's often uh, worth time looking for them. Uh, in the words of the great 19th century Aristotelian John Henry Newman, if points were never discussed, much knowledge would be missed, which by discussion is attained. So anyhow, the basic idea of the larger project was to read the De Anima as addressed to one relatively particular question. I don't mean it's the only question the De Anima is addressed to, just that it's among the questions that it's addressed to. And the question, roughly put, is about mind and world. What is it about the one, the mind, that makes it such as to know the other? That is, to perceive and to understand the honest-to-God truth about honest-to-God beings. And my guiding hypotheses were two. The first was that this is Aristotle's question, that is, a question that he means to answer in the De Anima. And the second was that the nub of his answer is that, in a way, uh, mind is world. In his language, and now I quote, uh, soul, in a way, is all beings. Okay. So the material I want to talk to you about tonight is mainly to do actually with the question as distinct from the, the answer. Uh, above all, what question is it exactly? And also, is it among the questions that Aristotle means to answer in the De Anima? Uh, but before I get to that, I also want to say at least something about the answer encapsulated in the remark that I just quoted. Again, soul, in a way, is all beings. The remark is certainly cryptic. You know, when you're reading the De Anima and you read that remark, you say, ooh, that's cool, that's cool. Uh, and it's also at least seemingly uh, un-Aristotelian. For taken on its face, it looks tantamount to some kind of idealism. Mind is world. Soul is the beings. And so before your tutors have me tarred and feathered and run out of here on charges of impiety and corrupting the youth, uh, <laughs> I want to start by taking a look at the, at the cryptic remark in its original context. Okay? And that's going to be the first passage on your handout. And I, I'll spend a little time. I'll read it in a couple minutes, but I'll spend a little time with that uh, passage. Okay, so the remark occurs actually relatively late in the De Anima. Book three, chapter eight. Uh, and it's introduced as kind of finishing up, as putting on the capstone, 
as drawing the moral of at least some of what, to this point, Aristotle has been saying about soul. And this introduction is, I think, important. It's as though Aristotle's telling us, hey, pay attention. Listen up. Here comes the punchline. You remember, don't you, how our predecessors said, not, not in so many words, but in effect, how our predecessors, predecessors said that soul is a kind of amalgam of the elements or principles of all beings. Well, they'd have done better to say like me, that in a way, soul simply is all beings. Now, admittedly, this punchline is pretty compressed. Like I said, it's kind of, ooh, something you expect to read in Heraclitus rather than in Aristotle. Uh, And in fact, we do get some elaborations and comment in the lines that immediately follow. And this is the first passage now on the handout, and I'll read it. Uh, But now, to put a cap on what we've said about soul, let us say again that soul, in a way, is all beings. For beings are either perceptible or intelligible, and understanding or science is its objects, in a way, and the senses, their objects. But what way this is needs looking into? Well, understanding and the senses are divided into the things, the beings, potentially, potentially, and in fulfillment, in fulfillment. But the sentient and understanding parts of the soul are these potentially. In the one case, what is understandable. In the other, what is perceptible. And it is necessary that they be either the things themselves or their forms, but surely not the things, for it's not the stone that is in the soul, but rather its form. The result is that the soul is like the hand. Indeed, for the hand is tool of tools, and intelligence form of forms, and the senses form of sensibilia. So how's that for a little word salad? Uh, you know, with my, with my students, I like to give them a passage of Aristotle and then another passage where I've just rearranged the sentences. It's the same passage, but I've scrambled the sentence. And see if they can tell which is the text and which is the scrambled version. And uh, often they can't uh, tell. Okay, so I'm going to spend a little time on this passage, and I'll be kind of working through the points on the first part of the handout that says, uh, Part 1, a moral in its upshot. Okay. And I'm going to start with what I think, or hope, are some relatively easy points, actually, uh, three of them. So first, um, Aristotle's initial wording notwithstanding, soul, in a way, is all beings. It's not, in fact, all soul that he thinks is all beings. No, that honor belongs only to some soul, specifically to the kind that is both sentient and intelligent, our kind. Uh, This is clear uh, from his rationale for saying that soul is all beings, namely that while the beings are either perceptible or intelligible, the senses in a way are the perceptible beings as intelligence, in our passage what he calls understanding or science, episteme, in a way is the intelligible beings. Now we know that the only soul Aristotle thinks is capable of both perceiving and understanding is our human soul. Ants perceive, but they don't understand. Gods understand, but they don't perceive. It's our special gift and blessing that we do both of those things. 
And so given that, his point must be actually that it's our human soul that in a way is all beings. That's elaboration one. Two, the statement that soul is all beings, even when restricted to just human soul, needs further qualification. In a way, Aristotle says, soul is all beings. And the way he means, as he also says, is potentially. That is, it's only when it is, so to speak, at work, when we are using our senses or using our intelligence, when we are perceiving or understanding that our soul is, in actuality or fulfillment, the beings we are then perceiving or understanding. And a third qualification is in order as well. When Aristotle says of our human soul that it is potentially all beings, what he actually means, again as he says, is that it is potentially the forms of all beings. For it is not a stone that is in the soul, but rather its form. Now, the effect of these uh, three points taken together is to soften the remark that the passage begins with. I suppose that everyone knows, every, half of you know and half of you will know, I suppose that everyone knows that for Aristotle, the mind, in knowing the world, is somehow likened to, somehow becomes the same in form as the being it knows. If you don't know that, you will. Uh, but what seemed provocative about the remark the passage begins with, soul in a way is all beings, was its apparent suggestion that the mind, in its very own nature, and therefore in advance of its use in knowing the world, is already all beings. And it is precisely that suggestion that's apparently taken back by the qualification that soul is but potentially all beings. Or is the suggestion taken back? We have yet to consider the last thing Aristotle says in this passage, his statement of the result or consequence or upshot of the remark he began with, now qualified and limited by the points that intervene. The result or consequence or upshot, he says, is that the soul is like the hand. Indeed, for the hand is tool of tools and intelligence form of forms and sensibility, or the senses, form of sensibilia. What does that mean? How is it related to what proceeds? Well, it's the result or consequence or upshot of the remark you began with, dummy. Uh, yeah, of course, but how? That's the, that's the question. All right, so we began with from the remark, what I've called the moral, that in a way the soul is all beings. And we've seen that this moral is to be limited and qualified. It makes the point that human soul is potentially the forms of all beings. Not only that, but we've also seen why Aristotle thinks this is a fair, is a fair characterization of human soul. It's because human soul is special. It's special in being both sentient and intelligent. Owing to its sentient part, or the, to the senses, to tease your tutors by reminding them of Kant, I'll call this sensibility, isosis, uh, our soul is potentially the forms of all perceptible beings. Owing to its scientific part, or to the intellect, what I will call intelligence, uh, 
Our soul is potentially the forms of all intelligible beings. So far, so good-ish. But now, suppose we were to press just a step further and ask, yes, but owing to what are they? Sensibility and intelligence, potentially in between them, the forms of all beings. Perhaps we will be told why each of them owing to its very own self, to its own nature or essence. No doubt. I mean, no doubt that's what Aristotle thinks. Um, but still the question remains, or at least seems to remain, yes, but what are those natures? I mean, what is the nature, the essence, the what is it of sensibility? And what is the nature or essence of intelligence? Now, Aristotle does not himself take this further step, does not raise these further basically Socratic questions about the nature or quiddity or essence of the senses or sensibility on the one hand and of intelligence on the other, not in this first passage that we're still talking about. Uh, but he does raise these questions and answer them earlier in the Day Anima. Sensibility, he says, it's mystifying, but he says it. Sensibility, he says, is a kind of ratio, logos. Specifically, quote, as it were, a kind of mean of the contrariety in perceptible qualities, hot and cold, wet and dry, light and dark, bitter and sweet, and so on. And intelligence, he says, at least one kind of intelligence, is something simple, separate, unmixed, being in its essence, activity. What is more, it's pretty much uh, clear that it's these doctrines, the one about the nature of sensibility and the other about the nature of intelligence, that Aristotle in our passage is actually drawing the moral of. He's hardly drawing the moral of what he said about uh, veg uh, in its kind of soul. The moral, in a word, is that soul, that is our human soul, is like the hand. Like the hand in that sensibility and intelligence, which are what together distinguish our human soul from all other kinds of soul, are respectively forms of the forms of their objects. In the one case, perceptible forms, in the other, intelligible forms. Fitted to our further questions, the idea would be is uh, that it's owing to that, to being forms of the forms of their objects that sensibility and intelligence, potentially in between them, are the forms of all beings. Okay. So st stepping back from these d details, whatever we make of the, the upshot, the last sentence of the first passage, it does suggest that Aristotle thinks of sensibility and intelligence as being in their own natures, that is, in advance of their use in knowing anything, forms. Indeed, not just any forms, but special forms. Special, that is, in their relationship or standing vis-a-vis -vis other forms, all other forms. Now, the exact nature and consequences of this special standing are hardly to be squeezed from this passage alone, but still I think the passage is suggestive. It's especially suggestive when read against the background of the question that I want to press Aristotle for an answer to. Roughly put, why is it in our nature, the nature of the mind, why is it in our nature to know beings, 
That is to say, all beings, the world. If that question were Aristotle's question too, if he thought the answer must lie in the nature of our cognitive powers, of sensibility and intelligence, if the point of the remark we began from is to draw the moral of his account of the natures of those powers, well, in that case, the result would be that for Aristotle, the reason it lies in our nature to know beings is that our cognitive powers, sensibility and intelligence, and their own nature, that is, antecedently to their use in knowing anything, are forms of the forms of all beings. If I can put the point more dramatically, the reason it lies in our nature to know beings is that our mind is the very form of the world. Uh, in any case, uh, it's this idea, this doctrine, that the, um, the larger project that I'm going to talk to you some about is trying to understand this cryptic, heavy, dare I say, groovy saying uh, that our mind is the form of the world. Uh, and my kind of guiding hypothesis is that it's intended to encapsulate uh, Aristotle's answer to my question, what I think is his question. Why is it that our mind knows the world? Well, it's because it's the form of the world. Okay, uh, so that's the big takeaway, and you'll be relieved to know I'm not going to say uh, more about it tonight. Um, I've put it in its terms as provocative as I can uh, muster. Actually, for the rest of the talk, what I'd like to do is to step back from the, the takeaway and focus instead on the question that I think this thesis or doctrine is meant to address. And I want, in part, to clarify the question and in part to make plausible that the question is Aristotle's. And I apologize in advance. Uh, if you think it's, I've been plodding uh, so far, I mean to plod uh, a little bit more. Um, it's okay to groan. Uh, I, I remind you, uh, if points were never discussed, much knowledge would be missed, which by discussion is attained. Uh, okay, so now I'm moving on in terms of the handout to part two uh, called Clarifying the Question. And you'll see there I have... Um, five points uh, that I'll try to make. Okay. So uh, consider generally uh, the question that I'm asking. It's a, it asks for the cause of a fact in the lingo for the why of a that, the propter quid uh, of a quia, the dehoti of a hoti. Uh, in a headline of the fact that mind knows world. And for starters, uh, we might ask, so what fact is that? Uh, now, it's characteristic of animals in different ways and to different degrees to be sensitive to opportunities afforded by their environments. In Aristotle's language, to make discriminations, crinane, uh, and to perceive, for example, predators and prey, obstacles and paths, offspring and mates, and so on. These are all things it's good for an animal to be able to tell the difference between. Uh, and if all that, then also things like size and shape and motion and rest. And if all that, then also one or more of, say, temperature, hardness, moisture, savor, odor, color, pitch. In Aristotle's view, there's no question but that this is characteristic of animals. That's a fact of life, 
on a par with what we, what we might call the fact of nature, that some beings move. As such, it's both a starting point for inquiry and matter for explanation. That is, though it's not something we seek to establish, it is something we seek to understand. If St. Anselm's motto was fides querens intellectum, faith seeking understanding, Aristotle's motto is knowledge querens intellectum. The understanding that he seeks is of known facts, in this case, facts of life. Another fact of life, similar but different, concerns human beings in particular. It's in our nature to pick up on what's off, pick up what's on offer, not merely in our immediate environment, in the way of just getting by, but in the whole wide world, in the way of understanding or insight. It's true that, for Aristotle, it's not every being that is, so to speak, on principle, and also that, absent a principle, there is, in a way, nothing to get. Some things are done on impulse, not on policy. Some are due to luck, not to skill. Some are due to chance, not to nature. Of such matters, at least in a way, there is no why, no scope for understanding or insight. Accidents happen. But none of this upsets the larger point, which is not only that, by and large, there is a what and a why to what we do and to what there is, but also that it lies in our nature both to seek and to find it. In short, understanding why is a function or work, an ergon or fulfillment of our nature as intelligent creatures. And in Aristotle's view, this too is a fact of life. And thus, this too is a starting point for inquiry and matter for explanation. Again, though it is out of place to ask whether, it's not out of place to ask why. So for a start, it's these big, broad, basic facts of life about animals in general and about human beings in particular that the question I think Aristotle is asking is about taken together and in a headline, the fact that mind knows world. And the reason I take them together, and indeed the reason I put them in a headline, is that Aristotle himself often does the same, treating them as one big fact. And he too states that fact in a headline, that is, roughly in schematically, by attributing knowledge to soul. The exact formulation varies, Sometimes he flat-out predicates knowledge of soul, as when he says, for example, that the soul knows and understands or judges. Sometimes he uses a construction with the genitive of characteristics, saying that knowledge or perception is of soul. I will sometimes use that construction, too. It helps to get the hang of it. You know, it's of dogs to bark. It's of cats to meow. It's of lions to roar. It's of soul to know beings. Other times, Aristotle says that knowing belongs to soul uh, by nature. Other times, he speaks of perceiving or understanding as among the attributes or affections or functions of soul. And some of this vocabulary is in passages two through four. I won't uh, read them out. In my view, these formulations are all variations on a kind of shorthand. They serve to indicate roughly and in general what Aristotle regards as simply a fact, namely, 
that it's in the very nature of living things, at least some living things, to perceive or to understand or to perceive and understand beings, all beings. And that question I think he's asking seeks the cause of this fact. In brief and in shorthand, why does it belong by, by nature belong to living things to know being? Okay, so now I'm going to move to my second point. Now, Aristotle's use of this shorthand raises a question. What sense, if any, does it make to attribute knowing, or for that matter, any vital activity, to soul in particular, as opposed to creatures that have soul, i.e. living things? Taken on its face, to say that some vital activity belongs to soul, knowing, perceiving, growing, moving, appears to imply that soul itself is what does or undergoes or performs that activity. For example, that soul itself is what grows or perceives or moves or understands. And most commentators, and probably you all too, find it difficult to believe that this is Aristotle's view. Namely, that though much or perhaps all vital activity is also attributable to living things, things that have soul in them, animate creatures, ta emsuka, being a joint undertaking of living things themselves and the soul that is in them, still, even such vital activity as is attributable to living things is in the first instance performed or undergone or executed by soul itself. Such a view invites us to conceive of soul as being, if not literally like a little body inside us somewhere, Still, some body-like item that, having taken hold of other bodies and thereby made them living things, then utilizes those bodies in performing its own work. Uh, this conception is excluded, I think, by Aristotle's definition of soul, according to which soul is not a body, but rather the form and fulfillment of certain kinds of body. It is true, uh, as I said earlier, in fact, that Aristotle often predicates vital activities of soul or of its powers. Nonetheless, in one place, he also explicitly corrects this, remarking that it's probably better not to say that the soul pities or learns or reasons, but that the human being does with his soul. That's uh, passage five. Indeed, he elsewhere speaks in similar terms about uh, art, as I guess how we translate it here, techne. Um, in some places, say, uh, he says that it does or makes things, and others that it, human beings do so with their art. Surely Aristotle does not think art is a body or a body-like item which first occupies and then uses human beings to perform its work, as though learning a trade were being invaded by body snatchers. Now, these considerations make it tempting to suggest that when Aristotle speaks of vital activities like knowing and perceiving as belonging to soul itself, that this is just a figure of speech and that what these activities really belong to is not the souls of living things, but living things themselves. Uh, but there's reason, I think, to re resist this suggestion. First, it's hard to square with the idea that Perhaps some vital activity is proprietary to soul, that is, does not belong also to belong because of soul to animals too. This is in passage three, um, 
Passage 3 is, is the mission statement of the Dianima. It comes earlier in chapter 1. This is like uh, the statement of agenda. We are seeking to contemplate and discover its nature and substance, that is its essence, um, and then all its attributes, some of which are held to be proprietary affections of soul, others to belong because of it to animals too. Uh, to say of some attribute that it belongs to living things because of soul is to say that its connection to soul is somehow prior to and explanatory of its connection to living things. Indeed, just this is also, is also implied by Aristotle's own definition of soul as the substance, form, and fulfillment of natural organic bodies. For one upshot of that definition is that soul is the essence of living things, which implies that it is somehow the cause of their attributes, that is, the reason why those attributes belong to them. But in that case, it can hardly be just a figure of speech when Aristotle speaks, say, of knowledge or of the imparting of motion as belonging to soul itself. For his own account of the nature of soul as the essence of living things implies that the connection of these attributes to soul is prior to and explanatory of their connection to living things. So in view of these considerations, I would propose that the sense in which these vital activities, perceiving, knowing, moving, growing, so on, belong to soul itself is simply the sense in which any activity belongs to that of which it is an operation or employment or use. In Aristotle's word, an energia or crisis. This passages 6 and 7, I won't read them. It's true that this makes it look as though uh, soul is a power or a dunamis, and that Aristotle does not define soul as a power or dunamis, but rather, and by contrast, as a kind of fulfillment, specifically the first fulfillment of certain kinds of body. But although this is important, I don't see that it's a difficulty. In Aristotle's view, power and fulfillment are both said in many ways. And if soul is the first fulfillment of certain kinds of body, it is likewise a power for life activity. My proposal then is that for Aristotle, vital activity belongs to soul, not in the sense of being performed by soul, ab or hupo, but in the sense of being an operation of soul, that is, one of its natural functions or uses. Okay, so to illustrate, just as seeing is a use of the sense of sight, and healing is a use of the art of medicine, and deliberation and decisions are use of, uses of practical wisdom, phronesis or prudentia, and contemplation, teaching, and proof are uses of understanding or scientific knowledge, episteme, so too, I propose, perception, understanding, nutrition, growth, reproduction, and so on, are all of them uses or operations of soul. And just as the former doctrines hardly invite us to conceive of the sense of sight, or the art of medicine, or practical wisdom, or scientific knowledge, as though they were uh, body snatchers, neither does the latter invite us to conceive of soul in that way. Moreover, although, for example, healing the sick belongs not only to the art of medicine, but also to physicians, the reason why it belongs to physicians, the reason why it's their work, is that it belongs to, is a natural employment of, the art of medicine. 
And similarly, although much, perhaps all vital activity, belongs not only to soul, but also to living things, still the reason why it belongs to living things, the reason why it's their work, is that it's an operation of soul. So on the uh, current proposal, then, it just comes out, just as healing's connection to the art of medicine is prior to and explanatory of its connection to physicians, so too the connection of vital activities, the soul is prior to and explanatory of its connection to living things. In fact, there's a lot more uh, to say about this, and you can thank me later uh, for leaving it out. Um, I'm going to move on to the third point. Uh, under part two, yeah? So, so far, what have I been doing? Uh, I've been trying to clarify the fact. I've been trying to clarify the fact that I think uh, the question Aristotle is asking is a question about. What fact? The fact in a headline that mind knows world. In Aristotle's language, that fact that knowledge is an attribute of or belongs by nature to soul. If not all soul, than such soul as is sentient or intelligent or both. And I now want to say, uh, so that's the fact he's asking about, and now I want to say more about the question I think he's asking about it. I told you I was going to applaud. Considered in terms of its form, the question asks why? Deity, propter quid. The question asks why some attribute belongs to some subject. But we can put this a little more precisely. What the question is asking, in particular, is what about that subject, in this case soul, makes it a subject of that attribute? In this case, what about soul makes it an attribute, a subject of the attribute knowledge? In Aristotle's language, the question asks, by being what is it of soul to know beings? Okay, and this point uh, may be illustrated from uh, criticism Aristotle makes of some of his predecessors. So I'm going to be looking at um, first passage 8 and then passage 9. And I'll start by just, I won't read passage 8, but I'll kind of uh, channel it a little bit. Um, so these earlier thinkers, Aristotle says, they arrived their, their views about the nature of soul from looking to the fact that it is of soul to know beings. That's passage 8. What must soul be, they wondered, if knowledge of beings is to belong to it by nature? A kind of amalgam, they figured, of the elements of beings. For, they held, knowledge is like by like, and in that case, they reasoned, if it belongs to soul to know beings, soul must be like beings, which is just what it would be, close enough, if it were an amalgam of all the same ingredients, namely the elements or principles of beings, all the elements. And the result is a view about what soul is, about its nature or essence. Soul is an amalgam of the elements or principles of all beings. But it's not merely a view about that nature or essence, as Aristotle represents it. It's a view about the essence or quiddity of soul, which also purports to show why it is of soul to know beings. The idea is that it belongs to soul to know beings because soul is like beings, like them, and being an amalgam of all the same elements. Now, one criticism Aristotle makes of this view 
is that it fails to explain the fact it sets out to explain. It does not, he says, this is passage 9, it does not, he says, belong to soul to know beings because soul is an amalgam of elements. And what is more, uh, in making this criticism, Aristotle is virtually daring us to ask him in turn, all right, wise guy, if you're so wonderful, why don't you tell us, by being what does it belong to soul to know beings? Now, it's true that, thus formulated, the question presupposes things Aristotle rejects. For example, that it does belong to soul, that is, to all soul, to no beings, or that all soul is uniform, that is, one and the same in every living creature. But even once these points and some others are acknowledged, the broad fact from which we began remains basically intact. That is, it does belong to soul, not all soul, but some soul, to know that is, to perceive and to understand perceptible and intelligible beings. That is, all beings. And if the fact remains, then the question remains too. By being what does it belong to that kind of soul to do that? Indeed, if I were to leave you with one point tonight, it would just be this. When it comes your turn to study the De Anima, or to come back to it and study it again, don't let Aristotle off the hook. Take him up on his dare. Demand from him an answer to this question, which he abuses his predecessors for failing to answer. Uh, demand from him, that is, demand from yourself, as his careful, sympathetic, intelligent readers. Okay. Fourth point. We're getting there. Now, look, in a way, the answer to the question that I'm so insistent that you press on that, Aristotle's obvious. The reason it belongs to some soul to know beings is that that soul, that kind of soul, is sentient and intelligent. Duh. And this brings me to a fourth point, which is that actually the question I think Aristotle is asking is after something more than this. Okay. And this point may also be illustrated from Aristotle's treatment of another fact of life, that animals move. I don't mean they move like when you uh, throw them off the roof, they fall. I mean, you know, they pick themselves up and, and move around. They fly and swim and creep and slither. and th They do that. How on earth do they manage it? Here, too, we may ask, well, by being what? Does it belong to such soul to do that? What sort of answer would Aristotle give to this question? And here, once again, his treatment of his predecessors is instructive. Aristotle imputes to his predecessors a tolerably substantive answer. Roughly put, that the reason it belongs to soul to impart motion is that soul itself is something in motion. That's in uh, passage two, I guess. Uh, now, it's true that Aristotle himself rejects this answer. He thinks this is ridiculously simple-minded. Uh, it's impossible, he says, that motion should be even an attribute of soul, let alone any part of what it is in its essence. This is in uh, passage uh, 9, picking up passage 10. But although Aristotle rejects the answer as uh, hopelessly simple-minded, uh, it's like science fiction, uh, he doesn't reject a question. 
That is, he himself is not at all content simply to say, oh, well, the reason it belongs to some kind of soul to impart motion is that that kind of soul is motion imparting. It's kinetic. Duh. On the contrary, the first question he asks when he begins his own treatment of the topic is what on earth is the emotion imparting part of the soul of animals? And is it, in fact, just a part of their soul, or is it the entire thing? And if a part, which part? One already mentioned, or some other one besides. All this is in passage 11. And I leave aside the details of Aristotle's answer to these questions, which are in any case controversial. But the point I'm now making is just that, in seeking to understand why it belongs to some kind of soul to impart motion, Aristotle is not content just to say that, oh, well, soul of that kind is motion imparting, is kinetic. Um, right? That's like, why does Ambien put you to sleep? Oh, well, because it's soporific. Ditto, I submit, as, regards, uh, as regards why it belongs to our human kind of soul, to perceive and to understand beings. What's wanted is not simply the information that our soul is both sentient and intelligent. Uh, no shoot, Sherlock. Um, what's wanted is an account of what makes our soul sentient and intelligent. If not its being an amalgam of the elements and principles of all beings, then what? Put slightly different, what's wanted is an account of sensibility and intelligence themselves. An account of what each of them is. Such as will also tell why, by being what, it belongs to them by nature, that is, is their function or work, to perceive and to understand beings. That's what he's looking for, I think. And uh, we have a right, I think, to ask him, so what is it? A soul is the form of the world. That and... Uh, Slogan is his answer. Okay, it brings me to my uh, last point, and then I'll wrap up. Um, so the question I've been focusing on, again, it asks uh, why an attribute, knowledge, belongs to a subject, soul. And it seeks a categorical answer to that question in terms of the nature, nature or essence or what is it or quiddity of that subject. I've argued that Aristotle means to provide such an answer in the De Anima. It's not just that he puts the question on his agenda in the beginning of the De Anima. It's implicit in the passages 3 and 4. It's also that he takes his predecessors to task, not for asking the question, but for failing to answer it. Passage 9 again. Still, maybe that was a mistake. After all, the question is dizzying in its generality. What would even count as a satisfying answer? What would such an answer exclude? What would it secure? So I want to end by saying something about how I think about this. So first, uh, consider some analogous questions as raised about analogous facts. For example, the question, why? By being what? Does it belong, say, to the art of medicine to heal or to the art of building to build? These are questions about the functions of these arts. They ask why those functions are functions of those arts. 
and seek answers in terms of the nature or quiddity or essence of those arts. Now, I allow that these are questions that in some moods Aristotle might refuse on the ground that uh, the arts in question are simply defined by their functions. But I also observe that in other moods he might rise to the bait, making appeal to the doctrine that arts are, well, are what? Are, are the very forms of their produce. The art of building is the form of a house and the soul of the builder. This doctrine makes a categorical statement, admittedly a very general one, about what arts are. They're the forms of their produce. The generality of the statement precludes it from saying much. Still, it does uh, exclude something. For example, that the association of medicine with health and of building with buildings is merely a coincidence. And it also secures something. For example, that healing and building really do belong to the arts of medicine and building, that they really are functions of those arts. Moreover, there's sometimes a point to securing even this much uh, in contexts in which the going alternatives effectively deny it. And such is the context in which poor, beleaguered Aristotle often takes himself to be in. Certainly, it is the perceived context of his investigation of nature, as he complains about Empedocles in Physics 2.8. Well, a person who says that, namely, roughly, that this comes from that as luck would have it, a person who says that simply does away with nature and things do to it altogether. And in fact, he speaks, Aristotle does, in a similar vein about earlier views about soul. He complains that most of them neglect the fact that things interact, not just any old things, with just any old thing, in just any old way, but because of their community, their koinonia. In the case that interests me, the community of subject and object, of knower and known, of soul and all beings, of mind and world. And considerations like these are a guide to what we may expect from Aristotle in the way of explaining certain facts of life. For example, the fact that it belongs to our soul to perceive and to understand, taken together and in short to no beings. We may expect him to try to explain this fact in terms of the nature of soul, not of all soul, but of our soul, and specifically of its cognitive powers, sensibility, and intelligence. In particular, we may expect his accounts of what those powers are to be intended to reveal their community with their respective objects, with perceptible and intelligible beings, and thereby to show why the association of those powers with those objects is not merely as luck would have it, but is rather in line with their respective natures. Put another way, we may expect Aristotle's account of the natures of those powers, of sensibility and intelligence, to be his attempts to say why, again, by being what. It is their work to perceive and to understand perceptible and intelligible beings. And in fact, we already know more or less what we will find. Juniors and seniors know, and the rest of you will know soon enough. I mean, this, the answers aren't hard to identify or, or to state. We're going to find uh, the thesis that sensibility, or the senses considered in general, is a kind of ratio or logos, specifically a kind of mean. And we're going to find the thesis that intelligence is simple, separate, unmixed, being in its own essence, activity, 
And these theses, uh, I'm thinking, just are Aristotle's attempt to answer my question. And they acquire a meaning when we see them in the context of the question that they are intended to answer. They're his attempt to say, by being what? It's of soul to know beings, of mind to know world. Okay, so to conclude. Um, right, so what's the gist? The gist of the larger project is to look at some familiar but obscure doctrines from a somewhat different perspective. The doctrines, these are listed in the handout, one, two, three, under conclusion. The doctrines, as I think, attempt to define uh, soul and the senses or sensibility and the intellect. And they say in brief, I'm thinking of two and three in particular, uh, that the one, sensibility, is a kind of ratio, specifically a kind of mean, and that the other, intelligence, is something simple, separate, unmixed, and so on. Well, it's not hard to locate the answers, and so it's tiresome to repeat the, the word salad. The, the thing that's important is to, what am I supposed to get from those answers? What question am I supposed to ask of them? What question are they supposed to be answers to? And the perspective uh, that I'm recommending is to see these doctrines as filling out Aristotle's answer to my question. Uh, roughly put, why does it belong to us by nature to perceive and to understand beings, all beings? And my guiding hypothesis is that Aristotle himself gives us, in a cryptic nutshell, his answer to this question in the dark but suggestive remark from which I began, that was in passage one, when he says that in a way the soul is all beings. I've suggested that the upshot of this remark, duly limited and qualified, is that the differentia of our human kind of soul, sensibility and intelligence, are in their very nature, in advance of their use in knowing anything, forms of the forms of their respective objects. Our soul is the form of the world. And for more on what that means, I'm afraid that you'll have to read the book. Thank you. Thank you.